you'd take your copy of God's Word and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Last time we were in Ephesians, we dealt with verse 21, which we argued was about submission to one another in the assembly. And now Paul is going to start explaining the kind of um, relationship that individuals within the assembly have in family relationships. And so I want to read verse 22 through 33. And then after reading verse 22 through 33, I'm going to ask Randy if he would ask the blessing on the reading. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with a washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as he himself and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Amen. There's a title to the sermon this morning. It would be The Mystery and Your Marriage. And I'm going to be unapologetic in asking you to embrace the scriptural truths that will help have us hold a high view of marriage. Our society, and, and frankly, we ourselves are also to blame for this, we hold marriage in very low regard. Marriage becomes unnecessary because you might just as easily live together as get married. Marriage becomes inconvenient and discarded easily as the U.S. is the world's leader in, you know, no-fault, do-it-yourself, $500 or less divorces. Marriage becomes despised because biblical marriage insists on specific roles for husbands and wives, and in those roles, those are things that neither women nor men seem to be willing to embrace today. Marriage has become something altogether different than what God designed marriage to be. It has become so 
maligned and muddied that our country endorses marriages that aren't marriages at all. At first, denying that marriage is between one man and one woman for one lifetime, and more recently, denying that manhood and womanhood is even something that can be an identifiable trait. We are surrounded by a world that has a low view of marriage. And too often, we knowingly or unknowingly embrace that low view. And we have no excuse for that as Scripture will show us that marriage is designed by God for our good. Biblically, we'll see marriage was created by God so that we might serve Him by having children, by maintaining faithfulness and and intimacy, by upholding properly ordered relationships, and by husbands and wives both conforming to Christ in marriage. Now I want you to note something with me before we dig into Ephesians 5 as much as we're going to at all, because I'm going to follow Paul's cue, look at verse 31, in making his arguments Paul quotes the Old Testament. In fact, when God instituted marriage, it's recorded for us in Genesis 2. When Paul wants to encourage Ephesian husbands and wives, he quotes Genesis 2. When the Lord Jesus was approached by Pharisees and challenged about his view of marriage, the very word of God incarnate went back to Genesis chapter 2. And so I think it's a pretty good indication. If we want to get our minds around this, We should also start at the beginning. So leave a bookmark here, but I ask that you would turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 is the continuation of the account of creation. And of course, we're jumping into that context in the middle, but I trust you're somewhat familiar with Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 2, pick up at verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a help meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to the beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a help meet for him. And the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And he slept and took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed." First thing I want us to see this morning is marriage was designed by God. Listen, don't miss what's happening here in Genesis 2 just because you're familiar with the wording and sort of read over it. 
right? What's happening here in this context is God had just created the land and the sea and the vegetation and then said that it was all good. He created the sun, moon, and stars and said that they were good. He created the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea and he declared them to be good. He created the land animals and finally he created man and said it was all very good. But the God who created all things and pronounced them to be good in Genesis 1 is the same God who here in Genesis 2 look down in his creation and sees the one thing that is not yet good as he intends it to be. God had created man and he looks at that solitary man and what does he say? It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a help meet for him, a help fitting or suitable for him. Brothers, gentlemen, think this through for a moment. What does this say about us? That even in a pre-sin world, God determined it was not good for us to be by ourselves. The man God created was good, but his solitary condition was not good. Alone was no way for Adam to go through life. And so God proclaims at the end of verse 18 his intention to make a help meet or a helper who was fit or a helper who is a complement to him. God proclaims his intention to create Eve as the wife of Adam. And yet, when we just read this text, he does not do it immediately. There's a lot of stuff that happens between that proclamation in verse 18 and then verse 22 when God presents Eve to her husband. Look at verses 19 and 20. How long does it take Adam to be presented with every type of animal and give a name for them. I'm not even going to pretend to know that. I don't have an answer for how long it took, but I have an idea of what that time going by and that task that Adam was given accomplished. It gave time to confirm that marriage was designed by God for our good. I mean, think of this, what a, what a feeling of amazement and astonishment that Adam must have had at the ability of God to make such wondrous variety of creatures. And at the same time, that job that he's given, what kind of loneliness must it have produced in him? Every animal from the smallest insect to the greatest mammoth is paraded by Adam in this like astounding menagerie. And he's paraded by this lone man on earth who saw them. And when it was done, when there's no more animals to see, Adam could say with certainty, but I don't see anything that's like me. I believe God's giving him an object lesson that all these animals that existed probably were presented to him two by two. Note the end of verse 20, but for Adam there was not found a help meet or a help suitable for him. There's no suitable match. There's nothing at this point that is, is complementary to Adam. There was nothing compatible to him. There's no partner. There's no counterpart. Nothing was like him. God has said in verse 18 his intention to make something that's suitable for Adam, and yet he does this exercise to show Adam, look, there's, there's nothing for you unless I make it for you. I hope you'll forgive me for imagining God speaking to Adam much like I did to my kids when they were little. 
Like, look, you, you, you must be tired. Why don't you go to sleep and see if things seem better when you wake up? In verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh and stood thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man, right? The, the creator of the universe who spoke all things into existence, this time opts to do something different. He takes the bone and flesh from Adam's side and with it he fashions this new creation. It's interesting the word that's used for made as God makes or creates. In all of the creation story in Genesis 1 is the word, the Hebrew word bara, which means to make out of nothing. But in this story, he takes this rib from Adam's side and the word is bona, which means to build or construct or, or to craft. The, the Lord God formed from Adam the most beautiful of all his creatures. Within Eve, there is all the, the beauty and elegance and grace that we find in women today. And indeed, grace might be the best word because this is an act of undeserved favor for Adam. God, in verse 22, brings her to Adam so that we see not only was marriage designed by God and designed for our good, but it's God himself who gave away the first bride. And Adam, bless his heart, he could honestly say to Eve, you are everything I never knew I wanted. And then God himself pronounced the very words that I've echoed in every wedding ceremony I've ever conducted and the words that Paul quotes in our text in Ephesians 5.31, therefore shall man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Let there be no doubt from the very first marriage, God designed marriage. He did it a specific way. He did it for our good. So, why doesn't it always feel good? Sorry. I mean, really, there is not a married person here who is going to legitimately claim that every moment of their marriage has felt like it was for their good. What happened? Well, knowing some context of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, what happened? Sin happened and it didn't just happen it was a willful choice by them both adam and eve called to be in submission to god's authority rebelled against their creator they rejected his command and that sin brought consequences to all kinds of things but for the sake of this morning's message i want you to know the sin brought consequences to marriage their marriage and every marriage that would happen since then. For time's sake, I'm not going to belabor all the details of the fall in Genesis 3, but you can glance over if you'd like to. The result of sin, when Adam and Eve ate the fruit that God had told them they were not allowed to eat, the result of that is that it brought God's wrath and it brought a curse on Eve in Genesis 3, verse 16, where God says, your desire shall be to your husband and he shall rule over you. That is, as a result of sin, Eve is going to find there is a kind of 
power struggle that happens in her heart is the rebellion against God's authority is going to drive her to hate submitting to Adam's authority. Meanwhile, in verse 17, Adam is also given a curse. And the cause of that, it says, is because you have hearkened unto the voice of your wife. Or let me say it this way. When it came to the fall, Adam did not lead in righteousness. He followed in sin. Both of them have ruined this good design for submission and authority that God had designed. Now, that sounds bad, right? I mean, how can we call marriage good now? We'll go back to our text in Ephesians 5. What we're going to find is while Paul talks about these issues of submission and authority in marriage, I want you to understand that submission and authority existed before sin existed. Right? So, we, we talked last time we were in Ephesians about, look, submission and authority are, are exemplified in the, the trinity of God himself, right? The son was willingly in submission to the authority of the father. Submission and authority are not bad things. They're good things. And they existed before sin ever existed. Listen, they do not exist as a result of sin. Submission and authority have become burdensome as a result of sin. And a Christian marriage redeems those ideas of submission and authority for the glory of God. After all, whatever we do, even to the extent of mundane choices, Paul says, like eating or drinking, we should do everything for the glory of God. I, I told Maya's softball team yesterday, this season we're going to play softball to the glory of God. Everything we do should be focused on the glory of God. How easily husbands and wives can lose sight of that fact that we are married to one another to the glory of God. Being married is going through this life together and the Bible is just drenched with wisdom for every area of life. It tells wives how to act and how to feel and how to think. It tells husbands how to act and how to feel and how to think. It tells us how to speak, right? And all the conversation and the conflict and the resolution and the decision-making and sort of the movement of marriage is covered by Scripture so that we know how to do it all for the glory of God. Marriage is for the glory of God. I can't even begin to stress enough how vital a truth that is to embrace so that you can have a high view of marriage that you ought to hold. Our marriages can't even begin to be what they ought to be unless we have God's glory as our primary focus. So let's talk about why. First off, marriage is designed as a picture or a lot of times in, in Scripture, instead of saying that it's a, a picture, we talk about it in terms of being, well, it's a type, or it's a shadow is a word Scripture uses. I like that one because think about what a shadow is. You know, the, what, what I always think of is when I was you know, really little and my grandfather would take me for a walk in the late afternoon to get some exercise and we would end up at the ice cream stand because... Yes, exercising for ice cream is the kind of, kind of counterproductive thing that made me the man I am today. Um, 
but I remember distinctly, you know, in late afternoon, we'd go for these walks and my grandpa would hold my hand and we would, we would end up at the ice cream stand. But as we're walking down the street, I see these, these shadows holding hands in front of me. When he died, it was the shadow that was stuck in my mind. Not because I missed the shadow, but because I missed the reality that it reminded me of. So that's what a shadow is, right? It's an It's an image of something else. It's an image of something greater. It's this imperfect representation. It it, it might be nothing more than an outline, but it is the image of the original something. Marriage, as great as it is, is a shadow of something that is far greater. Paul says in our text, this is a mystery. The marriage between a husband and a wife is a picture of Jesus Christ and his church. In several places in the gospel, Jesus describes himself as the groom who's coming for the bride. In 2 Corinthians 11.2, Paul tells the church at Corinth, right, I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. We've been reading in in revelation about the, the coming day of the unity of the bride with Christ. So if Jesus says he's the groom and Paul says the church at Corinth is engaged to Christ and Revelation gives us the picture of this bride of meeting with Christ. Here in our text, in Ephesians 5, Paul is more explicit that the marriage relationship pictures Christ and his church. And this is attitude-altering when we start to see the implications of it beyond just trying to, you know, jump in and find the theology of Ephesians 5, right? But this passage teaches us about the love between the Lord and His church. I want you to know, that's, that's not the primary point that Paul has in writing this. You know, well, a common thread of Paul's letters is that he says, here's what you should believe and here's how you should behave, right? They're filled with, here's all the theology you should know. And as a result of the theology you should know, here's the practical way you should put that into action. Ephesians 5, which one is this? This is the section that is the practical way of putting what we believe into action. And so he he has this practical admonition at the end. Nevertheless, right, regardless of all those things that he's been saying about what the truth is, nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself and the wife see that she reverence or respect her husband. And yet throughout this passage on marriage, the conversation is so gospel-saturated that sometimes you really have to take a step back and consider which of the two relationships Paul has in mind. Right in verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. In verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. In verse 24, the church is subject, or they submit to Christ. In verse 25, husbands loved wives the way Christ loved the church. In verse 32, this is a great mystery, Paul says. And this mystery is revealed through Christ in the church. Now, I want you to think, there is a, there's a few ways of coming to this passage of Scripture. You can either come to this text and think that Paul is telling them, that, well, you know what, now, since you've got marriage all figured out, let's use that 
to teach you about the relationship of Christ in the church. Or you can come to it and say, well, since I know you Ephesians completely comprehend the eternal realities of Jesus' headship and self-sacrificing love, let me use that as a way of explaining marriage to you. Or, just maybe, Paul is saying, you have these two great mysteries here which can best be understood by setting them beside each other. This relationship between husbands and wives, it's a shadow of something that's greater still. And because of that, because of all the surpassing glory of what marriage pictures, all you Christian husbands in Ephesus and all you Christian wives in Ephesus are called to submit and nurture and sanctify and nourish and cherish and reverence and love. If we understand that there is this link between the earthly institution of marriage which God created for our good and his glory, if we understand that there is a link between that and sort of the eternal realities that it pictures, it is going to leave us with this profoundly high view of marriage. The view must be high because according to Paul, marriage is an institution that is so gospel-saturated that it pictures the love, sacrifice, and nurturing of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And so in society, and this is true of Christians as well, when we think about marriage, we think of it in terms of, you know, happiness and rings and ceremonies and romance and emotions. And those things are not bad. Okay? All those are, are good things, but they are not going to cause you to have an especially high view of what marriage is. But if we see marriage for the gospel-saturated picture that it is, we'll think of marriage in Christ-like terms, such as holiness and humility and meekness and mercy and and, and grace and self-sacrifice and love. Marriage was designed by God for our good, for his glory, not only to be a picture of Christ in the church, but also within that to be a picture of the gospel itself. Stick with me here. Look back up at verses 25 through 27. Paul describes that Jesus loved the church. He sacrificed himself for the church. By that sacrifice, he sanctifies and cleanses the church. He removes every spot and blemish and makes it holy. That description of what Jesus has done is the gospel work he came to do. It's like it's it's impossible to imagine that without the work of the cross. It's meaningless for Paul to say this without the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in mind. This is not an afterthought of God. In fact, in Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, Paul quotes Genesis chapter 2 to tell us this is not an afterthought of God this this is this is a long ago thought of God for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife and they too shall be one flesh this is a great mystery but I speak concerning Christ and the church right so he's looking back at that first marriage of Adam and Eve where there's those two which God has joined together the wedding in which God himself gave away the bride, right? The only couple of whom it might literally be said, those two were made for each other. And instead, Paul says, look, it's more than just that. They were made to be a picture 
of something greater. Even back in Genesis 2, the institution of marriage was designed to picture the Jesus, the Son of God, who would leave his father, would join himself to his people, would sacrifice his life for their good, would unite with them to be one with them, would hold them fast and say things like, well, the father which, has gave, which gave them to me is greater than all and no man can pluck them out of my hand, which sounds a whole lot like whatever God has joined together, let no man put asunder, doesn't it? Don't allow yourself to think about your marriage as like this just boring, meaningless thing. It's a shadow. It's an, it's an outline of the very gospel work of the Son of God. And let that reality sink in. And then embrace this text in all its glory when it says things like, wives, submit yourself to your own husbands, and men ought to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Marriage is designed for a purpose. Not only is marriage supposed to picture the glorious realities of the work of Jesus, but even in this life, a Christian husband or a Christian wife are becoming more Christ-like through their obedience to God in marriage as he designed marriage to be. Becoming more Christ-like or being conformed to Christ is another of those overarching themes of Scripture. Right? You know, Paul tells the Corinthians, we're being changed to the image of the Lord. He tells the Colossians, we've put on the new man, renewed in the image of Jesus, our creator. He says, we're partakers of the divine nature, all pointing to the day the apostle John foresaw when it would be complete and we'll see him as he is and we'll be like him when we see him as he is. Listen, be careful praying for God to make you more like Jesus because he just might do it. And you can say those words without really embracing what they might mean for you because marriage is one way that he might do it. As a Christian, marriage is a calling of God for you to sacrifice your selfishness for one of his children. Listen closely, please. Marriage provides perhaps the greatest opportunity you will ever have to carry out some of the most challenging, most crucial, most radical calls to discipleship that Jesus gave his followers. At least five times in the Gospels, Jesus speaks of one who is willing to, quote, lose his life for my sake. And contextually, when he says that, he's not just talking about dying. In those passages, Jesus is speaking about those who are really willing to live for him. To be willing to lose your life for his sake is not just to see your life come to an end. It is con continuing your life completely dedicated to him. To put aside your own selfish ambitions and being willing to follow him and obey him and conform to him and make him the priority of your life. That's the clear calling of Jesus. Now let me ask you, how have you lost your life? What has your Christianity cost you? What is it that you have had to put away to be a disciple of Jesus? Where do you have the opportunity to do that 
living for him, that losing your life for his sake that he's called us to do? Well, you get it in the relationships that God has providentially brought into your life. And marriage is exactly that opportunity. Marriage is having the Lord place someone in your life and then command you to be dedicated to that person's well-being, to give up your own selfish desires in favor of their needs, to be a servant for that child of God for their sake and for the glory of Jesus Christ. Marriage is the real opportunity to lay down your life in genuine service of Jesus. Not some idealistic notion of romanticism, but, but real service to someone who, you know what, they see you 24 hours a day and they know when you're failing. We're called to be conformed to Christ, but we fail more often than we succeed. How? Do we conform to Christ? Well, in marriage, there's a couple of ways. Wives are called to submit to their husbands, and in doing so, they are being conformed to Christ. I know submission is just this horrible word in the world today, but it is a Christ-like characteristic. Verse 22, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Right? This is not where every man gets to say, obey me like I'm God. That's not what this means. In submitting yourself to your husband, you are doing that as an act of submission to God himself. And note, this does not say that every woman is to submit to every man. It says to, for wives to submit to their own husbands. It doesn't say the husband is the Lord. It says submit to the husband because you're submitted to the Lord. There's a world of separation between those ideas. Scripture is clear that the wife is the equal of the husband in the eyes of God who said in Jesus, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's not bond or free, there's not male or female, you are all one. God sees us all of equal value. But God is a God of order and declares that the husband is to be in authority in the family. And so this is a call to willing submission, not to spiritual or or mental inferiority, right? We talked about the basics of this word submission last time. It's it's originally a military term, which means to, to rank under. And any person who's ever served in the military, you can ask them and then they will tell you that not every higher ranking officer in the entire country was their moral and spiritual and intellectual superior. But there still needs to be order, otherwise it leads to chaos. And so God calls for willing ranking under, willing submission. Hope you stick with me as I just Greek nerd out for a moment. In the original language, verbs of what you have to do, can they have a voice. They, they can be active, meaning it's an action that you do to something else. It can be passive, meaning it's an action that is done to you. Or Greek has this really cool thing called the middle voice, which is it is an action that you do to yourself. That's what Paul uses here. It is the middle voice, the idea of submitting here. It is an action that the wife does to herself. 
right? That is, she willingly makes the active decision to rank under the authority of her husband. If you can get your mind around that, it'll tell you just how flawed an idea it is when some men say things like, putting that woman in her place. Like, you can't do that. It's not, not only are you not able, right? Even if you had the power to do, make her do what you want, that's not her place. That's not submission. The moment you try to attempt to force submission, it's not submission anymore. It's not a willing ranking under. The only way a wife will ever be in that place is if she puts herself there. And if you really want to help her along that road, then be the kind of loving husband who so follows Jesus' example of self-sacrificial love that your wife sees voluntary submission as something appealing. Many tend to think, well, unless you really are inferior, what kind of person in their right mind would ever be submissive this way? Well, I'd like to think the answer is, is someone who would say something like, I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I don't seek to do my own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. For a wife, submission to her husband is to be Christ-like because Christ is the perfect example of this willing submission. We can never want for a better example than Jesus himself, who at every moment was submissive to his Father's will. For a husband, a husband who is actively loving his wife is being conformed to Christ. I tell a story on myself when Joy and I went to marriage counseling before we got married. We went to this couple who I just greatly respected, uh, just a lot. And I spent some time before we went prepping Joy, being like, you know they're going to say this thing about submitting. You know they're going to say some things that you don't like. But in the process of actually being counseled, it turns out she wasn't afraid to be a wife the way I was afraid to be a husband. During that counseling, as we went through Ephesians 5, I fluctuated between annoyed to enraged to terrified. Or just think, verse 25, husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. You love your wife like Jesus loved the church. What's that look like in real life? Oh, well, he loved us because we were so lovable. He loved us because we fit his needs. He loved us because it felt good and love. After all, it's supposed to be easy. He loved us because of what he could get from us. You know none of that's true. I try when talking to young unmarried men about their intentions, I try to ask, why is it that you want to get married? Just sort of feel them out on this. And once I was counseling a young man who went on and on about he wants to get married because of how great his fiance is. Like, she's beautiful and she's kind and she likes what I like and she dislikes what I dislike. She makes me happy. She's always so fun to be around. She's just this great thing in my life. And I told him, that sounds perfect. Maybe you shouldn't get married. Can you believe he got angry? 
If she's perfect, don't mess her up. If she's perfect, she doesn't need you. If she's perfect, there is nothing for you to do. Most importantly, if you're marrying her because you think she's perfect, you're not going to be happy when you find out she's not. It's, no, I, I love her unconditionally. I'm like, are you sure? Because that's not what you just said. You just described you were ready to love her unconditionally as long as she met all your conditions of being beautiful and perfect and fun and happy and doing all the things that you like. That's not what your marriage is going to be like, man. When the King James translators came across this Greek word for love here, most often, you know, they translated it as charity. When you think of charity, we think of the act of giving something of our own, whether it's money or, or time, for the benefit of another. Charity is not just an emotion that you feel, is it right? You don't, none of you ever fell into a charitable donation. No, you determine to do it and you take some action. Biblical love that husbands are called to is charity. It is determination and acting. It is not displaying, it's not displayed through the way you feel, but through the things that you do. And if you want proof of that, think about what it means to love your wife the way Jesus loved the church. Did Jesus love us based on the fact that we were so lovable every moment? I mean, really, did he look down at you from heaven and you were like, you know what? He's just so great. He's so smart and funny and he likes the things that I like and I just want him around. I suppose I'm just going to love him. No, he loved me despite the nasty wretch that I am. The test for a husband is can you be conformed to Christ by loving your wife the way that he loves you? Can you be dedicated and determined to do what's in her best interest before your own, even when she doesn't deserve it? Maybe especially when she doesn't deserve it. It's always when I see Christ's love for me. Everything the Lord did is beneficial for the eternal benefit of his people. And when Paul calls on Christian husbands to be dedicated in their marriages... He expects everything we do to be to the loving benefit of our wives. Just as Christ sanctified and beautified the church. Look at verses 28 and 29. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, even as the Lord the church. Can I I maybe describe it this way? What Paul's describing there is the idea of marriage being one flesh. It's taking two people and it's making them one. How is it that you're going to look at your wife as anything? Why is it me and her? Why isn't it just us? We're one. Husbands, when you are being the leader and the authority in the marriage... You're called to do it lovingly. If you make any decision or give any direction or say any word that is done out of self-interest instead of your wife's best interest, you have failed to follow God's design for marriage. Look, I, I have to wrap this up. It's, I know it's not really been digging into the text as much as we usually do. It's been more of a 
biblical theology of marriage than it has been uh, exposition of the text. But I think it's helpful, not only for those of us who are married, but also for those young people in our church who are getting closer to that time, that they think that they would like to be married. You want to know if you're ready to get married? Well, then you have to ask, are you ready to lose your life for the sake of being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Because you're going to be asked to do that in marriage every day. Every day, a wife willingly ranks under, submits to her husband's will, and she is being conformed to the perfect image of Jesus Christ, who is the the paradigm of submissiveness. Every time a husband selflessly sacrifices himself for the benefit of his wife, he's loving her like Jesus loved the church. Do not put yourself into either one of those roles unless you have a high view of marriage and a love of Jesus that's going to sustain you to the end. Or perhaps you're married and you think that your marriage has, you know, it's grown meaningless. It no longer feels like it has a purpose. Right? Maybe you're unhappy because of the way your spouse acts. If so, I would encourage you to consider that your purpose in marriage is never going to be thwarted by a bad spouse. Are you being conformed to the image of Christ? Are you being a wife for the glory of God, reverencing, respecting your husband for the Lord's sake? Are you being a husband who's conformed to Christ? Are you laying down your life for your wife the way the Lord did the church? Because marriage is designed by God. It's designed for our good. It's designed for his glory. And here's the mystery in your marriage. It's more than just, you know, if you do this and follow these instructions, you're going to live a happy life. We need to infuse our marriages with the willingness to conform to the image of Jesus because that's what marriage is about. The mystery in your marriage is the opportunity to proclaim Christ's love biblically and to display Christ's love beautifully. 